I think from an investor perspective, the biggest misconception would be to buy into a high score and think the company is truly sustainable. Because the reality with ESG is the data is self-reported. The data often is limited in terms of the range of disclosures. It's very selective. It's very manipulative because large companies with big CSR or sustainability departments can often manage the narrative around ESG better than smaller companies. There are a lot of geographic biases. Developing countries tend to get poorer ratings. They're usually penalized with a corruption or transparency type discount. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and the global threat of climate change had forced many companies into going full ESG from tracking their carbon footprint to working with sustainability in mind. With me today, Ravi Chittabaram, CEO and founder of RIM and co-founder of TC Capital, who helped me to decipher what it means for Asia Pacific and discuss his work in this space. First of all, I must thank Parakana, our friend and your collaborator in a recent Harvard Business Review article who brought us together in a dinner that led to this conversation. Ravi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Bernard. So as a first-time guest on the show, the first question is always about the origin story. How did you start your career? Well, I think I was one of those classic undecided students in business school looking for career direction. I dabbled in a few things before business school, didn't have clear conviction. When business school had the opportunity to study a variety of subjects, interview with a variety of companies, I think I found that investment banking was a career that I was well suited to. I tried a summer internship at Goldman Sachs and then joined Goldman full-time after I graduated from the Wharton Business School. And it turned out to be a, a good move. And that was the beginning of a very long career in investment banking. So being in the investment banking sector, I think also in mergers and acquisitions or m we call it for a pretty long time, starting from Goldman Sachs and then subsequently Bastons and then with TC Capital. What are the key learnings that you have brought within that industry to where you are in your present state then? Well, M&A is a complex, ever-changing industry. I think there's so many takeaways over the many transactions that I've done in many places and many industries. The first is the need for problem solving and creativity. M&A deals tend to be very personal because at the end of the day, you have a founder or family often selling the business that they're emotionally invested in. And you have a buyer who probably is a bit more dispassionate there's a bit of an alchemy to try to put it together. And, and it means solving problems on a cultural level, on a technical level, and the need for creativity and that sort of last minute sort of twist to get a deal over the line because uh, valuation gaps tend to be prominent. Terms and conditions around the continuation of the family or the management in the business post-sale, earnouts. There's so many finicky issues to deal with in M&A. That's what we found. The other thing about M&A, I think it's very important to recognize trends, to recognize that there's certain themes which are very prominent and prevalent or can be, and whether that's geographic, industrial, thematic, it's very important to, to understand that a bit ahead of the curve. The third is probably the ever-evolving landscape that a lot of financial players have entered the M&A scene. When I started, 
at Goldman Sachs, there wasn't much of that. It was mainly strategic M&A. But, you know, these days, I would say one out of every two, three transactions globally happens with financial parties. They have their own unique aspects that you have to deal with. So there's just so many takeaways. I have to say, even 30 years on, I learn new things and new tricks after every deal. And just when you think you've seen it all, you always encounter something new. Yes. I think one thing it came across to me, you also have been very multidisciplinary as well. I know that as a side geek, you are an adjunct professor teaching sustainability in the Yale National University of Singapore College, which will be transitioned to the NUS College in Singapore. Can you talk about how you bring the industry thinking that you have previously to your students with regards to sustainability, which is a totally different subject, or maybe it's evolved through the, your banking journey as well? Well, I guess I'm paying forward by teaching, but it's something I enjoy doing. Well, look, I think at schools like Yale and US, you have some very bright kids, but they're very thirsty for real world perspectives. I think Yale and US recognize that and brought in adjunct professors like myself. I always tell my students I'm not an academic, but I can teach them and give them real world perspectives. I think they, they like that. Sustainability is a subject that touches on so many real world issues from the workplace and how millennials and Gen Zs feel they're treated in the workplace to, of course, climate issues about which they're very emotional because they're young. You know, they have to deal with these crises in a far more acute way than perhaps we do. So I find that a lot of these sustainability subjects resonate with my students, and it's my job to bring out those real-world perspectives, how sustainability affects the workplace, how it affects various industries, how it affects the government and regulation, how it affects technology and the need for innovation. It's one of those beautiful fields that it gives you a chance to riff on many things. Of course, fundamentally, it goes to the heart of how societies are organized, capitalism itself, economic systems and models. So a lot of interesting matter to deal with. And I try to make it as practical as possible for my students. Yeah. Well, what would be the career advice or lessons through your career journey that you share with your students, like some life lessons as such? Yeah, I think that one is you can keep reinventing yourself. You start in one career, like we all do, but over a long career, provided you have the hunger, you have the motivation, you have good health and a bit of luck, you know, chances are probably you could really do three, four, five things over the course of a career. And that's both horizontal and vertical. You can try totally different careers or you can try different functions within one company. You could be an entrepreneur. You could work for a big company. You could manage money. You could, you could do many things. And I think, well, of course, we're fortunate in that we have opportunities. We're intelligent. And if you, if you think imaginatively and plan a little bit, I think you can have many careers. And I think that's a, that is a very uh, evolving trend these days. And it's probably more relevant than ever in the tech world where you can pursue so many opportunities that wouldn't have existed 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Which comes to the main subject of the day. I got you here because I want to talk about thinking about sustainability and investing in climate adaptation and also to hear about what RIM is doing from your point of view. 
I think one interesting place to start the conversation is we often hear about the concept of environmental, social and corporate governance or what people call ESG in short. Can you explain the concept of ESG and how has ESG percolated into company practices today? Well, you know, ESG is a very contentious term these days, and a lot of the founders of the movement are disavowing the term ESG. But yes, it is used quite commonly in sustainability, often even as a shorthand or substitute for the word sustainability. But maybe the most simple way to explain ESG is like this. Historically, companies have always measured themselves against financial performance. And that, some will argue, is the only way companies should measure themselves. And it's very objective. It's an easy way to link compensation systems, budgets, strategic planning, and all the rest. However, uh, the world of ESG tries to introduce the concept of non-financial metrics that could be of relevance to a company in many ways. One is it could directly impact the financial performance through externalities, the economic concept of externalities, that you may pay carbon taxes, which reduce profitability. You may have physical asset risk where your factories may be underwater. One day you have a workplace that's mobile, and if you don't take care of them, they walk out the door. So all of these eventually will impact the business model and the numbers. But equally, those non-financial impacts are very, very important in a stakeholder-driven world, that you have to be a responsible corporate citizen, you should take those responsibilities seriously, and indeed, you're having some impact on the world in many ways. So there, there's different ideas around non-financial impact, but ESG, in the simplest way to think about it, it is how do non-financial impacts impact a company? And I think it's also popularized by Larry Fink, I think in a particular gathering of CEOs and who Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, pretty well known for asset management. And then also thinking about this morning, I was watching a John Oliver video on carbon offsets, which was really, really funny. But I wanted to take an example to, on that. So companies are trying to reduce carbon footprint by using carbon offsets and like yet worldwide sequestered of carbon is less than 1%. How does carbon offsets or carbon credits actually work for companies? I mean, I wanted to tease out a very basic example of ESG in this conversation. Sure. Well, the simplest way to think about carbon offsets is the following. There are companies that are heavy emitters of carbon, and there are companies that actually are net negative on emissions. You know, obvious examples, if you're a fossil fuels company, you're a heavy emitter. If you're a renewable energy company, right, or a forestry company, you, you may be actually doing well because your net emissions will be negative. So the idea really around carbon offsets is to match those that emit with those that actually have a positive balance, right, on emissions. So that, that is the simplest way to think about it. And that's really what the carbon trading and carbon offset market is all about in its purest form. Now, if you're a heavy emitter, many governments by law allow you to purchase carbon offsets to reduce your emissions footprint uh, discounts, but they cap it. Like the EU, for example, caps that at about, I believe, 20% of your emissions reduction programs per annum. 
So that is how the market works. So how would it work in practice? If your company that actually is doing very good things for the environment, right? And, and carbon footprint, like a renewable, you would want to do an audit of your emissions to show indeed that you are on the right side and that you're eligible to sell those credits to emitters. That usually involves a certification process by a third party. And there's a secondary market where the, the, the price is fixed by the market. If you're an emitter, then you want to purchase those offsets from these types of players, again, at a fluctuating spot price on the market. And you'll have to stay within the bounds of what's allowed by regulations and report. So if you report on your emissions reduction program, you have to use a mix of techniques from carbon offsets to actual physical emission reduction programs by switching to renewable power or shutting down polluting industries and so on, right? So that, that is really in the purest form how carbon offsets should function. So given that all the different initiatives from governments, companies, and nonprofit organizations to take on climate change and with their aim to get to net zero by a certain day, and the goal's aspirational and it's not really a hard target, I guess one thing I do want to ask you is what are the realistic scenarios that we're going to see in our lifetime? Well, if you go by what's happening today, right now, we are at about 1.7, 1.8 degrees. Paris Protocol sets a 2% ceiling, but most scenarios have us going through that ceiling. And depending on different climate pathways, we could be anywhere between 2.2 and 2.7 degrees. So if we leave the course uncorrected today, we will not meet the Paris Protocols. We will break through it. The impact will not be even across the world. Some places will be higher than others. But the general trend is that we will break through that barrier over the next uh, few years. Even worse, because of historical uh, emissions, it's probably not possible to reverse course over the next 10 years. So even worse, we kind of are stuck on this pathway. It will get worse before it gets better just because of the huge amount of historical emissions that have built up. So the reality is really you have to endure this ride and then invest in technologies today to hopefully reverse it post 10 years. How much that will reduce is very hard to say because it's completely a function of regulation, of technology, of the willingness of companies to use that technology, and so on. So I cannot predict what could happen over the next 10 years, but I think the general consensus for the next 10 years, we won't be really on a positive trend, even with the best of intentions. So that is the, that is the reality of where we're going right now. Which comes to the next question, because I've read your article on HP is about it's time to invest in climate adaptation, which you co-authored with Para, is that what is climate adaptation and why should we be investing into climate adaptation right now? Right. So if you go by the premise that I just stated, that we are on this trend to break through Paris and because of historical emissions, we won't be able to reverse it anytime soon, the need for climate adaptation becomes even more relevant because effectively what climate adaptation admits 
is that we cannot completely reverse the trend on global warming. We have to manage with the trend of global warming and all the consequences it brings. That's just being realistic, right? So what is climate adaptation? Well, there are a range of things, right? One is early warning detection systems, right? Like tsunami detection systems, flood, and so on. The other is defenses, that you actually invest in physical defenses to prevent floods, hurricanes, earthquakes, all these sorts of things. That's on the one hand. The other hand is actually problem solving at the source. So if you have water scarcity as a result of drought, which is a result of climate change, then you need to invest in technologies to manage either very low water type scenarios or create new fresh sources of water from things like seawater, right? Or even dew, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of technologies. So it also means applying it in certain industries like agriculture. It could be drought resistant crops. It could be drip irrigation to more wisely use water in fields, those types of things too. So uh, it's a very wide definition, but effectively it all goes around the theme. Look, we're stuck with this scenario. So we need to do the best we can to manage within that scenario. And that really is why it's called adaptation. So to dive deeper, and let's say we think about agriculture, I think that's where climate change is going to be effective the most. How does the climate adaptation thesis that you talk about would work in this case? Because companies nowadays, nowadays are actually leveraging on insurance to hedge against the crop use. Can they still do it with the change of climate change? Because I think in the last few years, we see very erratic weathers. I think even for France, people were making red wine, the whole climate so screwed that they're having a heat wave and they might not be able to give them good bottles of wine so i guess how do we what's, what's the mental model thinking about this then yeah it's a great question i mean climate change is really disrupting insurance markets and credit and banking markets for a long time insurance companies and banks never factored in climate change in the way they assessed risk and the way they manage portfolios i think it's fair to say they're still fairly slow in adapting these climate models to the reality. But I think insurance is a very difficult solution. For the farmer, it's really about prohibitive premiums. And I think even for the insurance company to predict default risk is very hard because as you say, it's very unpredictable weather patterns generally for all sorts of crops in all sorts of regions. So insurance, I'm not sure is the way to mitigate agricultural crises. I think, again, climate adaptation is the key. So if one takes the value chain of agriculture, well, typically it starts with water. You want to manage water very carefully. There are technologies where you can use seawater to turn into fresh water. It's still a bit expensive, but it's becoming affordable at a farmer level. You have to look at other technologies like storage technologies for rainwater, dew, and things like that. So that's that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think you need to re-engineer crops. So I think genetics has a big role to play in this. 
It's uh, whether it's meat or crops, it's all about more drought resistant, using less water, crop rotation, and so on will be very crucial to managing a, a climate sort of Armageddon type scenario. Yes. And even growing so, crops in space, right? I think there's uh, also yeah, ideas on that. Yeah, too. Yeah, you can completely shift the venues for where you, you grow it as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. The other question I thought would be interesting to discuss on climate adaptation is water scarcity. Are there examples of companies uh, deploying measures from technology to policies that will resolve these issues? Because at one point in time, I was looking at water exchanges as a form of an in- investment vehicle as well. Yeah, well, they say water is the new oil. And definitely, I think secondary markets for water could become prominent over the next 10, 20 years. Look, I think that from what I know, a lot of the great work in tech happening in the water space is really around things like water technologies, such as the desalination of seawater into water that's used in fields, water storage technologies for dew, for rainwater, and a lot of amazing stuff going on, of course, in terms of the genetics. Precision fermentation is a very fascinating area because if you take lab-based type foods, I think that that is a very interesting movement that can address those kinds of issues. So you'll find most of the tech happening either in the water reuse or storage, or really in the entire sort of genetics, crop re-engineering sort of space. Given that I'm in the construction and real estate, I would like to hear your thoughts on how the industry as a whole would think about the built environment. So are there initiatives to think about housing for the next billion of people and also at the same time reducing carbon footprint? Because in Asia Pacific, we probably own three billions of the seven. So we are going to be the largest population and we are growing as a region. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Unfortunately, your industry is probably one of the worst. I think it's about 25% of historical emissions. There are two particular reasons for that. It's the heavy energy inputs on raw materials like steel and cement. And there's a lot of existing building stock, which is highly inefficient, of course, in terms of energy efficiency and also the energy mix they use in buildings. So that that's what it is. From what I know on the material side, I think people are getting more clever about design and planning and materials they use, trying to switch materials to things like wood, bamboo, things like that. And there are more green processes now to make cement and also steel, like hydrogen and things like that. It's not super widespread, but slowly it's coming into view, right? So that's on the material side. In terms of the building efficiency side, again, that is an area of climate adaptation. I think that is a more doable area, and that's 70% of emissions today. So we have to acknowledge that useful lives for a lot of these buildings are 30, 50 years or whatever. So you want to make the most of it, right? Especially in a place like Singapore, which has a lot of fairly new building stock, right? So there are a lot of things you can do there. Those are well-established technologies. It's not that expensive. And a lot of energy efficiency types of programs can be put into buildings. And and it is happening. And uh, the renewable mix is harder because it may not be available. Depends on the country you're in, but uh, that would be the other way. In terms of what you're talking about for housing, We do give examples of that in our adaptation article. 
I think we cited the example of Mexico, where a lot of prefab kit type housing, modular housing is becoming popular. I think it addresses the twin problems of affordability, which is a big problem, along with the environmental impacts, because these are generally made with very healthy green materials. They're really easy to throw up and they're very inexpensive. And there have been very, some very successful rollouts in emerging markets like Mexico. So I think in ASEAN or Asia in general, there's no question that that type of opportunity, I think, can be very, very interesting and successful. So uh, that kind of modular housing really works very well socially and environmentally, I think. Yes. And it's also quite interesting, free fabrication also helped in, in terms of increasing productivity and yes. also make it easier for the built environment at the same exactly. time as well. Exactly. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. So I think just now when we talk about the carbon credits, I forgot this technology question. I, always, I, I think you have a very good take on it. What are your thoughts on companies trying to deploy things like blockchain technology to trade and track carbon credits? No, I think it's I think it's potentially quite promising. I have a few reasons for that. One is, as I said, it's very hard today to verify the authenticity of companies that claim that whatever they 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 plant trees or they have projects which by definition are green and they qualify for selling carbon credits. So there's a lot of uncertainty. I did say you need third-party certification. And that is happening. But blockchain may be a far more scalable, accurate way of doing a third-party certification. The second good thing is right now, the carbon offset market is fairly narrow. So, you know, any market gets better with more liquidity and more buyers and sellers, right? So if we can use blockchain like we did in other areas like crypto and so on, I think it could be interesting to expand the pool of buyers and sellers. So with, with good data to back that up, right? So you start to create more of a true secondary market, I think. Another thing is with emissions, there's a lot of double counting. So that's also a problem in the offset market. Like two companies may claim the same <laughs> credit. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. So again, blockchain could help sort that out. So blockchain has an important role to play, I think. What I don't know, I think it, it, it's not easy because you have to track it at the source all the way through. And emissions is a varied kind of thing, scope one, scope two, scope three, where some of the, some of the emissions are indirect. So I don't know if it would work uniformly for all industries, but I think for direct emissions, it, it, you can definitely use blockchain to, to, to improve the verification process. Indirect emissions, I don't fully know. I, I think it'd be a little more challenging today. I want to allude to the, the conversation we had in the cafe a couple of weeks ago. What should be the mental models for companies to think about ESG? And I like your take on that. Yeah, look, I've always taken a very pragmatic view that ESG is just another critical business function like CRM or operations management or finance. I don't like a lot of my fellow practitioners in the industry who are advertising some sort of massive impact or taking a very lofty, idealistic view about sustainability. I don't think that's realistic. We need to take very baby steps 
before we could really integrate sustainability into organizations and create true impact. So therefore, I think the best we can hope for today is that companies do take it seriously as a business function and invest in it to improve their efficiency, get started on the journey, start tracking the right KPIs, set goals and targets, report on them in an authentic way, so on. So I, I think it's just the fundamentals. Yeah. So one thing that came out, and I think this started also with Elon Musk challenging how ESG is measured by MSCI. What are your perspectives on thinking how we should think about measurement of ESG by companies? Because that also comes into the, the thing about ESG as a business function, right? Scoring is probably the most contentious aspect of ESG today. And Musk is not incorrect because if you look at Tesla and look at some major ESG rating agencies like MSCI or indeed Sustainalytics or Refinitiv, um, there's no correlation at all in the scores. So some will tell you Tesla is a bad company on ESG. Others will give it very high marks. So if you're an investor or another stakeholder looking at these, how are you supposed to action that, right? What do you make of it? And I think that is the problem in the industry. So much so that, in fact, there's recently been a trend of even lawsuits against MSCI and other rating agencies because they feel they either are assessing the wrong information or indeed scoring it in an opaque way that presents a misleading picture around ESG on that company. So there have been several lawsuits, I can tell you, and I'm sure this will continue to increase. So ESG ratings are very fraught. You know, it's not helping the companies. It's not helping investors or other stakeholders, right? So yeah, it is an area that really needs quite a bit of reform. So what are the misconceptions that most people are getting wrong about ESG? Well, it depends how you mean it. I think from an investor perspective, the biggest misconception would be to buy into a high score and think the company is truly sustainable because the reality with ESG is the data is self-reported. The data often is limited in terms of the range of disclosures. It's very selective. It's very manipulative because large companies with big CSR or sustainability departments can often manage the narrative around ESG better than smaller companies. There are a lot of geographic biases. Developing countries tend to get poorer ratings. They're usually analyzed with a corruption or transparency type discount. Sometimes even language plays a role because most of the rating agencies only look at information in English. It's fraught with a lot of problems. ESG per se, the whole exercise of assessing yourself on KPIs and forming a view, it often is not objective or even have a lot of value. So I've observed some companies are focusing now on the reporting of ESG and some on trading water, some on carbon credits. How do you look at the startup space in the ESG space? Yeah, we've taken a very different approach at RIM. We believe in a stack approach or a suite approach. The reason is, I think... You cannot be a specialist in this field because many analytic aspects are coalescing in each use case. So I'll give you an example. If you want to qualify for favorable trade finance in a supply chain, right? Banks are now requiring you to have an ESG score 
an ESG report based on multiple standards. That report has to be audited and they may even require additional certifications like ISO. You have to prove yourself in the supply chain with all those disclosures before you qualify for trade finance. Carbon could be part of that because if you're in an emissions intensive industry, the carbon audit may be part of that too. So you can see already we're talking about four or five analytics, pieces of analytics that you need just for trade finance. If you want to serve a client for trade finance, right, whether it's the bank or whether it's a company in the supply chain, you need to offer them multifunctionality. You have to give them that stack. So what you have to do is give them a core assessment that can then allow you to report on multiple standards. It's audited. There is a score to back it up. It may link to ISO certifications. It may lead to improvement programs and target setting, right? And it probably also has a carbon ingredient to it. Um, Same in uh, supply chain, right? Supply chain too, if you're an OEM assessing your supply chain, you probably will assess companies on a number of metrics from reporting to scoring to certifications and so on. So almost any field in sustainability, any use case will probably combine many different ingredients, analytics. So if you're a specialist only focusing on carbon accounting or you're only doing reporting, I think you're missing out on a lot of the functionalities you need to serve clients holistically in an integrated way. So that's why we believe very much in the stack or suite sort of approach. And the beauty of it, I think, is it's a scalable model because once you have data input, you can apply many things to it, right? You could score it, you can benchmark it, you can report it, you can audit it, and you can do many things with it. So yeah, that's kind of what we think. But I have to say, we're probably in the minority in thinking around that. But I do believe that the use cases will coalesce towards more of this stack approach. Hmm. Which I've taken a look at RIM. It's a sustainability platform pretty much catered to enterprises which is trying to work on their own ESG programs and trying to find a reporting mechanism. Maybe help me understand in terms of the approach, the platform approach that RIM takes and how does it work for companies like for example i think there is a there's a point of view that you have this that it actually different industry verticals have very very different needs and part of rim's approach is actually to make sure that you dive deeper into those specific industry verticals as such yeah no that's very true i mean basically rim we have a series of Lego building blocks that we've created through our tech team our data science team our research team And those building blocks include different sorts of assessments. We have a question library of 3,600 questions. With one click, you can create assessments for industries or by standards. We have analytics blocks where you get different scoring algorithms. You get benchmarking against peers, against global frameworks like Paris. We have reporting algorithms. We can create different sorts of automated reports, sustainability, impact, analytics, and so on. And our view is these are endlessly configurable in different ways. So, you know, we sort of offer our building blocks in two ways today. One is a standard product, which we call MyCSO, which is the stack approach, which has all the building blocks in it. 
and you pay an annual subscription. It's inexpensive, about $2,500, and you can use that. Or we can do what we call co-development, where we use specific building blocks for specific industries to solve specific pain points and use cases for clients. And this goes to your point that sustainability is very industry specific. So you and I could work on a solution for the construction industry that has very defined assessment parameters, very defined scoring parameters based on what you think is important, very defined supply chain type practices, and so on. And then if we do it for you guys, chances are other construction companies will also be able to use it. And everyone co-develops and contributes to the knowledge base to solve sustainability problems and pain points in that industry. Now, we haven't done it yet for construction, so it's a bad example on my part, but we have done it for insurance. We have done it for banking. We have done it a bit for some manufacturing industries around supply chain. So what we find is, I think, good B2B SaaS companies, again, in other business functions, really get to know an industry very well and serve an industry very well. So our co-development product is very helpful in, in doing that. And I think sustainability, given the very early stages today, it's very important to work with industry experts in different industries to understand the pain points. Just to go in with a fixed solution may be a bit naive right now, because this is not a mature business function like some others. You know, finance, one can argue, one understands, okay, if you're going to do certain things like banking back office or accounting software, I think the rules of the game are pretty well established. You probably just have to be more efficient, maybe have a slight twist to the business model, cheaper, and so on. But sustainability, to be honest, I myself do not fully know yet, right, what we need in terms of functionalities on our platform to serve different industry verticals and serve different clients. So I'm learning every day. So co-development for me is a chance to work alongside smart people in industries trying to solve those problems and be humble enough to say, look, we'll work with you. We'll, we'll, we'll customize it. So yeah, that's kind of the approach we're taking. If I take the built environment question in construction, you can think of construction also, they have different segments. Like for example, there are people who focus on just doing construction for homes, residentials and then there are people doing commercial and the needs and the way even the material supply chain is totally different. One interesting part I, I, I liked about what you're thinking in terms of co-building with different companies in, in specific sectors is, is that you're also providing a way as you're learning with your ESG templates, I would say for a, that specific industry, you could also be able to measure some form of index, maybe at some point using AI or using analytics. Is that how you're thinking in terms of trying to establish some common metric that people can think about, but may, may, they may be just be instrumental in terms of guiding their ESG efforts, not so much of being the definite measure? Yeah, I think you're right that it would be difficult for us to be a definitive standard or measurement tool. I think that's probably a little bit wishful thinking today. However, data and data science plays a very key role in our industry efforts, because what we're hoping is if I get a thousand data points from the construction industry, right, I will be able to create reports and analytics that I can share with people in the industry. 
And we can create what I would call more of a directory approach. And we have looked into this in industries like insurance. And I think that plays several roles. One is we're not a standard, we're a directory. Everyone has contributed to it. So if you want to check on certain suppliers in construction and they've given their data in the directory and that data is verified, even through blockchain, could be different ways, then you've established trust other construction companies can go to the same thing. It works particularly well for industries like banking and insurance, where they're making credit decisions and policy decisions based on a common set of data, right? So I think it could work that way for construction too, in supply chain, for example, or maybe I'm missing out on other use cases for directories. So that's one. That's one use of data. But the other use of data is also for predictive analytics, right? And just sheer information. And I think that that also has value. So data is for me, the next layer after co-build. Because if you do enough co-build in a sector, you get enough data and insights where you can begin to then play with that and share that with the industry participants in some form. Yeah. And do you think about, let's say, establishing a benchmark within that vertical? So there are certain benchmarks reliable. I, I wouldn't say it is the definite indicators, but maybe relative based on, let's say you have surveyed a thousand companies and you can see there are some pretty good, clear indicators that they have to meet certain benchmarks, but it doesn't define it as a, like an index that clearly. Yes. yes, it's kind of RIM's view. I think we can. I cannot give you a tangible example today yet, but I think... Once we have a critical mass of data points, I think it is possible. I need to sit down myself with the data science team and see kind of what we can do with that and what patterns and trends and maybe thresholds we can establish. But I suspect you could, yes. Mm. Okay, I'm going to flip the question a little bit differently. How do companies leverage on RIM to develop and deploy their ESG strategies. I think maybe good to give us an example of how like a management team to think about tracking sustainability efforts. And I'm talking to you because I'm thinking about a solution for my end because everything is tracked on Excel spreadsheets and it's not going to work unless we have a more definitive way of looking at it. Yes. Well, in a broad sense, RIM really helps on two levels. One is productivity and the other is applications and solutions, right? So one is, yes, you do track sustainability, but you do it through emails and spreadsheets. So we can digitize that. So that's the productivity. Productivity from data management, data storage, even taking existing data you have and using NLP to populate new assessments, helping you manage the deluge of ESG assessments you may face from regulators, customers, and so on. So it's productivity. But then applications and solutions, that is more, hey, how can I use sustainability, right, in, a, in an interesting way in my industry? It could be towards building new use cases around revenue applications. It could be around managing risk in your supply chain. It could be different things, right? So we work on both levels. Um, I think in the simplest way, a lot of the productivity is baked into the MyCSO platform, but a lot of the applications and solutions are more baked into the co-build, co-development, where we'd have to sit down together and see what that could be. But we believe that both of these 
conditions should be satisfied for any customer. On the one hand, everything has to be easier, faster, cheaper. On the other hand, it also should have utility. It should bring them something, right? Otherwise, why do sustainability management? We do believe it's more than just filing a compliance report or something like that. So what does great look like for RIM in the next three to five years then? Well, I think if we get it right, uh, we're going to have millions of users and data points from different co-development projects and the sale of my CSO. Arguably, we'd have probably one of the best databases of a lot of rich data that we can then use to become more of a data science type company. So that's one direction. The other direction is your point about industries, that we do enough co-development where we have very specific solutions and products for different industry verticals and can scale within those industry verticals, right? Even if we can just own a few industry verticals, I think these are quite large industry verticals, you know, to own. And it's not as if somebody really owns the space today. So I think that is where on those two vectors, I think that's where we can create a scale proposition. So that's really our hope. And, and that's kind of what we're working on. Ravi, many thanks for giving me a masterclass on ESG and how you are thinking about it through the lens of RIM, which you are building. I wish you, of course, all the best and hope to see the great version of that. So in closing, I have two more questions. The question number one is any recommendations which have inspired you recently? One book I would recommend, we were talking about agricultural technologies and how that would impact sustainability. There's a great book by a Guardian journalist, George Monbiot. He's written a book called Regenesis, and it really talks about some super cool agricultural technologies that really can make the world a better place from a sustainability perspective. It's something I teach in my own class at Yale NUS, and I was very inspired by by that. Yeah, so that's one. Another one, which is an amazing book, is written by this anthropologist, David Graeber. He unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but he's written a book called A Brief History of Humanity. And he touches on a lot of sustainability topics through the lens of how ancient societies actually lived. And he debunks a lot of common myths in the modern world about human behavior, about inequality, about sustainability, because it seems it wasn't always that way based on past evidence. For me, you know, very original and insightful and learned about all kinds of obscure ancient civilizations. So, yeah, I mean, those are two inspiring examples I could think of off the top of my head. Thank you. I have actually haven't read them, so I'm going to check it out pretty soon. So last question, how can my audience find you? Well, mainly through LinkedIn. I have an active LinkedIn profile. I do post fairly regularly on ESG topics. Uh, RIM also posts regularly and, you know, uh, we, we sort of twin my own presence with also RIM's presence. So that's probably the easiest way to find me. Mm. You can definitely find the podcast in every platform out there from Spotify, Apple Podcasts to anywhere. And of course, tweet to us and provide us feedback through our Twitter, Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And of course, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help us to discover better. So Ravi, many thanks for coming on the show. This will not be the 
last and we're definitely going to talk again at some point in time about ESG again right here. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me, Bernard. Enjoy. Run it, run it, run it.